It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Kano Sego, Ani Bojo, Kwekwe, Hansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. And you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. And if you download the app and then just just type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 106.5, rather 95.7 ELMNTFM. And you can be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country uh, 24-7. And uh, if someone is outside of our listening area and you think they might enjoy some of our programming or some of the interviews that we have here on Moment of Truth and uh, you might have missed one, uh, you can let them know that they can uh, uh, download the app and they can also listen on SoundCloud. Uh, by the way, uh, we do post our uh, interviews on SoundCloud and on our website, so you're more than welcome to listen there as well. Enough about that. Let's move on. My guest uh, joining me on the line is actually Beth uh, Malcolm. She is the VP of the Canadian Women's Foundation, and it's a pleasure to have Beth joining us. So welcome, Beth. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. You know, it's um, we see a lot more um, ha- uh, things and issues coming forward uh, having to do with women and girls, and I think it's a wonderful thing, of course, and uh, probably long overdue, as I'm sure many women would probably think. Uh, definitely, we. I mean, we've been working at, um, on issues for a long time. Um, the women's movement, in, in all its forms, have been. Um, trying to make some changes, and it's really nice to have lo- a lot more conversation uh, in the media, in you know, private conversations as well, around um, why gender equity makes a different for difference for everybody. It's not just women who benefit from that, but um, you know, trans folks, men, everyone benefits um, when everybody has gender equality. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And of course, uh, this idea of the Canadian Women's Foundation, as you mentioned, it's been around quite a while, but it's got a really uh, interesting story about how it started. Do you care to share that a little bit about the beginnings of that organization? Yeah, it's, it is kind of interesting. About 30 years ago, or almost 30 years ago, uh, a group of women got together and they said, uh, you know, we need to do something about... Um, Actually, they were calling it sexism mm. then, um, and we need to do something about it. And women who have access to money, we need to support other women. So, because there was very, very little money mm. going into any programming for women, and this was even, you know, um, they were kind of saying, "What can we do as women to support other women?" So, I, I guess the story goes that a couple women um, sort of were sitting in their lawn chairs and saying, "You know, let's let's mobilize, let's do something." And they gradually began to pull together other women. And I, the story goes that the first uh, flyer, because there was no email back then, uh, that went out to people was uh, come into a meeting and talk about stamping out sexism forever. So they came together and gradually started fundraising and making money, uh, or sorry, raising money to be able to make grants to community organizations across the country, because it is a national foundation. So, you know, in the 30 years ago, they were you know, maybe giving out a few grants of a few thousand dollars each, because they were impatient. They didn't want to wait to raise a lot of money to start giving it out. They were just eager to give it out. And gradually, since then, um, we've now been you know, been able to raise a lot more money and, and over 30 years have probably um, raised over $90 million. Yeah, and, and that's wonderful to see. And, you know, you were referring to the about 30 years ago and, and uh, from the information I, I saw, in, in fact, in 1986, there was no national women's organization for this kind of thing. Yeah, there was, you know, um, there wasn't there wasn't a foundation that was specifically focused on women, and it's actually been a global trend um, that gradually uh, in the states there's quite a few women's organizations, and now globally there's probably uh, over maybe even close to 200 women's foundations that have developed across the globe. Yeah. Now, something else you alluded to as well. Uh, you, you talked about a couple of the women. Uh, the, uh, the names I have are Nancy Ruth and Susan Woods that uh, started yeah. that discussion. Now, uh, what's interesting is that uh, from some of that information that they gathered at the time, 
that you also alluded to was that uh, from this Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, they had found out that only about 2% of charitable donations from corporations and foundations were actually going to the service for women and girls at the time. That's right. That's right. And um, Nancy Ruth um, has been a big supporter of Canadian Women's Foundation and LEAF, or um, Mm -hmm. what you just described, the Legal uh, Education and Advocacy Fund, uh, and helped get both of those started. Um, So it was really about how do we get more money into the hands of women to help women. And as you as you also pointed out, uh, it's grown to uh, now, uh, I believe over over ninety million dollars that has been given given out, uh, and about a hundred about nineteen hundred uh, 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 people have benefited from this. Yeah, and that's over the course of of the thirty years. Um, now each year. We, it depends on the year because it's all based on fundraising, sure. um, how much is raised, and then how much can be given out. But um, we're, you know, we're we're probably giving out. In the, it's, again, depends on the years between five and around five million dollars in grants um, to more than a hundred organizations across the country, and and those organizations often change. They're not they're not the same ones all the time. So we do fund different organizations across the country. Some get multi-year funding, and then it changes to a different group after that. So. Um, the exciting thing is, and it's really a privilege to be at the foundation and think about and think about funding across the country because we have the opportunity to understand what's happening in Saskatchewan or what's happening in mm. Nunavut or the Atlantic provinces. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's right. Now, uh, of course, uh, Beth, you're the director of the Girls Fund at the Canadian Women's Foundation, and and you've led that development uh, for the Girls Fund, and it's an initiative that uh, uh, helps girls across the country and working girls in, in from 9 to 13. But you've also worked with, uh, I see, pregnant teens and single parents and adults and, and uh, youth offenders um, in developing uh, social enterprise and fundra- funding uh, streams uh, at United Way. Yeah, yes, I, that's... Uh, it, so, so do you mind me asking, in, in regard to that, how long have you been involved with this line of work? So myself, I've been at the Canadian Women's Foundation for almost 15 years. Um, prior to that, I was at United Way of Toronto uh, for 10 years. And prior to that, so you, I'm giving my age away, but um, <laughs> prior to that, I, I did work frontline as a social worker, working with young offenders and adult offenders, and then moved on to work with pregnant teens and parenting teens. Um, so after working in the front line um, with clients for a long time, that's when I moved on to United Way because it's a tough job to be on the front line. And, and I really admire those people who are able to do it for their whole careers. But I had the opportunity to go to United Way uh, of Toronto and uh, it was a different kind of work. But one of the really exciting things that happened there is uh, we started the Toronto Enterprise Fund, which was um, supporting social enterprises to help that could employ people or help people get training who were homeless or at risk of homelessness. So it was a really exciting time to be able to see businesses develop that were actually giving people real opportunities to make some additional money or to get some training to then move on to other jobs. Mm. You know, you, and you we ma- fund that at, you, at Canadian Women's Foundation, too. We're funding some social enterprises now. Right. Now, you mentioned in that, uh, just ex- explaining your, your experience and the time you spent in doing different things, about uh, uh, that frontline work. And, uh, and, and it does take a toll on er- anyone, and I think anyone that uh, is doing any kind of frontline work that deals with, uh, with people in, in situations uh, of this nature uh, or, or that, that are uh, uh, you know, dealing with people in challenging situations, it, it does take its toll on you over time. And it, uh, it's, it is, I, and I, I agree with you, I take my, my hat off to people that can continue to do that on a, on a year-after-year basis and stick it out. But it's also great for those other people that are coming in. And that's your, your organization also looks for volunteers, I believe, and people that uh, you, you look for uh, uh, wanting to bring into the fold. Yeah, because we're not a direct service organization, we don't have a huge number of um, volunteer opportunities where people can interact with um, 
participants, uh, you know, whether it's a violence prevention program or a girls program. So we often help make connections to local organizations where people are um, to connect with their local uh, organizations working with women and girls. Um, we, you know, directly at the foundation, we would have more volunteer opportunities around specific fundraising events that we're doing, mm. um, that type of thing, rather than the direct service volunteering. But sometimes that's what people want, is they want an opportunity to to help make a difference in, in a different way than working one-on-one with people. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, something about fundraising, and uh, I know that you have an event coming up uh, in March, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, but perhaps that's an opportunity where you need volunteers to help out as well, right? Yeah, we have um, a, a big event that's coming up in March. Um, it's called The Exchange. It's on March 5th, and we, we're moving it close to International Women's Day, mm-hmm. which is March 8th. And uh, we're so excited this year that Samantha B. is going to be our guest speaker, our keynote speaker. And People will know her as a comedian and, and the host of Full Frontal. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We're, this is a huge fundraising event for us, and it's really critical that we sell tickets. Uh, but we, because it's so big, we do need volunteers. We'll mm-hmm. be needing volunteers for that yeah. as well. And we'll come back and talk to uh, about that a little bit later on. Okay. But uh, before we, we, uh, we do, I, w- I wanted to ask you about, uh, because you mentioned about the, the time that you've been involved with this kind of work and, and moved through uh, these things over, over a period of time, I'm wondering... What have you seen change over that period of time? How has it changed, or have you seen any change in that period of time, especially around um, the equality issue? Well, I think we've made some gains in some ways. Um, you know, there there has been positive change. There has been lots more conversation. People are beginning to understand what healthy relationships are and thinking about consent and... Um, but I guess, well, there has been small incremental changes, and I think what I find really disheartening is to think about how far we haven't come. Mm. I mean, the, the number of um, intimate partner, uh, people who've experienced intimate partner, it's still a high number. The number of um, women living in poverty um, is still high. And I mean, many people are living in poverty, but women are particularly affected. And also, when you think about um, women of different intersections, we, they're not all the same. Indigenous women experience violence and poverty at higher rates. Women with disabilities are experiencing poverty and violence at higher rates than others. So, you know, change is good, but I, there's no reason why we can't make it even better, uh, improve situations for people. The other thing that I think people often don't think about um, just in terms of change and, and how things that are happening in our environment affect women often in different ways is we there's recent research that talks about when there's natural disasters, whether that be floods or fires, and we think about that now in Australia, but it happens in Canada as well. Um, the, there's a spike or an increase in violence um, against women during those natural disasters. It's a stressful time. It's um, really challenging, and people are, you know, in very, very difficult circumstances. And so the challenge is that there's an increase in natural disasters. So, therefore, we're seeing um, not just the spike around one natural disaster, but when there's multiple natural disasters, that's a lot of um, more women who are experiencing violence. You know, uh, as you're explaining that and sharing that information, I can't help but think of some of the other guests we've had on the show uh, in regard to women, in regard to uh, violence against women, in regard to some of the other issues that we've had come forward. And uh, I've heard that before um, in terms of just uh, situations where uh, mining uh, comes up, uh, goes into different territories, and there's there's these towns that spring up with the, the people that are brought in to work in these areas, and and that that's a situation where we where they also mentioned where there is uh, violence against women that that is increased, and it, it's uh, you know I, I appreciate you sharing that, and uh, I, and um, it's unfortunate that this kind of thing does 
um, does happen. Uh, before we go any further, I just want to jump in, though, and, and just mention that and tell everyone that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the line is Beth Malcolm, and she is the director of the Girls uh, Fund at Canadian Women's Foundation uh, of Canada, and uh, it's great having her on the line. We're talking about a number of things, uh, certainly about the Canadian Women's Foundation and what they do. Uh, they are looking for donations, so they're, they're a charitable dona- uh, uh, organization that you can donate to. You can go online and visit their website at uh, canadianwomen.org, and you can find out more about the organization, about how to donate, and about the upcoming event that's going to be uh, coming up on March 5th at the Sheridan Centre in Toronto, and uh, there are special guests that they're going to be having uh, to come in as well. Uh, we've also been talking about uh, some of the, the, the things that uh, the organization has been able to do uh, over the time of, of, do- of giving back to the community. I mean, uh, Beth, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation about the very first uh, time they, they raised mon- mon- money for the organization. I think it was about $50,000, and uh, I think they gave out 40000 of it right away. Uh, and so that's uh, that, that. I think that speaks to the the values that the organization was setting up right there to give you know ninety percent of it or so away uh, right away with their their first uh, with their first endeavor to try and, and help. Um, what kind of things do you look for uh, from uh, from donors, or or what kind of things do you do you hope to help or, or give back to when you're you're looking to try and and uh, benefit others? Um. So, do you mean um, what? Can, what will donors? Yeah. Well, what benefit? you can, what you can, when when people donate to you, where do you look to to donate your dollars back to the community and help people with? Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, so, the really um, neat thing about um, giving to the Canadian Women's Foundation is that the funds that are raised, we're looking nationally. So you can be living in Saskatchewan and you can be helping women across the country or you can be in in Nova Scotia and and you can have an impact in different parts of the country. So that's kind of one I I find really intriguing thing about the Canadian Women's Foundation. And so when, when we raise money and we make grants to community organizations who are going to be delivering service in their community. So we have different types of funding. So we fund programs for girls between the ages of 9 and 13 that are really helping them build confidence and critical thinking skills and connectedness. And we know that critical thinking skills are really important for young people today because there's so much information out there. They have to be able to sift through it and and figure out what's real to them and what's important to them and and understand identities and uh, you know, make choices for themselves. So that critical thinking skills is really important in the, our girls' fund programs. So people apply to us, mm-hmm. and then we have a committee of volunteers in, uh, in all of our grant areas, but a committee of volunteers who would make decisions about who to fund in each of the um, across the country mm-hmm. in each of our funding areas. So mm-hmm. it might be Girls Fund, it might be Teen Healthy Relationships, which is programs for um, usually 11 to 19-year-olds, somewhere in, in that age group. And that's really talking about healthy relationships. What's a healthy relationship? What's an unhealthy relationship? What do I do if I find myself in an unhealthy relationship? And talking a lot about consent. We also fund other um economic development programs for women. So this is an opportunity for women to develop, uh, to be an entrepreneur or develop their own uh, business Mm -hmm. or for women to participate in trades and technology programs so that they can hopefully get um, employment that's going to be able to help them have a living wage. We also fund in that area social, uh, social enterprises. So those are businesses with a social purpose of employing women. Um, and then we also fund some violence prevention programs. So those might be uh, supporting programs that are running in shelters or second-stage housing or for children who've witnessed violence, some programming for them, or women who are working in, um, who've experienced sexual exploitation. So all kinds of programs across the, you know, way of supporting women around violence and poverty and leadership. Mm. And is there are there specific dates that need people need to apply for, or is it an open kind of thing that revolves? 
So we do have um, grants uh, deadlines, and all of that information is on our website, okay. which is canadianwomen.org. And if you go to um, what we fund, there's information there. And so they open calls. We have right now one open for annual grants. Um, that's the deadline is February 27th, mm-hmm. and we that covers all areas of our work. And then we have other grant deadlines that are specific to a, a particular grant stream, like the Girls Fund or the Teen Healthy Relationships programs. And most of our funding is multi-year um, for organizations, mm-hmm. and that's um, we really feel strongly that multi-year pro, uh, funding is important to organizations. So. It's it's a best practice so that we try and do that wherever possible because it means that organizations spend less time writing applications. They write one application and they know that they're going to have funding for maybe three or four or five years. And so they'll, they're not spending as much time writing, looking for the next application or the next pot of funding. Mm. But also it means that they can continually improve their program for those three or four years. So they learn something in the first year and they can immediately implement it and make their programs better and better. And we do a lot of work with the organizations. When we fund them, we bring them together as as a group, and they can have an opportunity to learn from each other. So that capacity building is really, really important to us as a foundation. Right. Now, as you you, you mentioned earlier about the organization wanting volunteers, and we're we'll, we'll getting close to when we talk about this uh, this upcoming event, um, you have a, about you know a few minutes left. So um, the, the other thing you mentioned was uh, gender equality, and you said this you know this isn't just these things going on are not just uh, for for women but but all people. And I guess uh, you know anyone could volunteer. You're looking for uh, anyone to volunteer as well, males and females. Uh, uh, could volunteer and help out with your organization. Um, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, anyone's welcome to volunteer. Um, on all of our committees, we have um, people of all types. Um, we have men and women. Um, we certainly know that we can do better about being more inclusive around trans and two-spirited folks. Mm-hmm. Cause, um, but, you know, we're really, we've, we've been thinking about that a lot and trying to figure out how we can do better. Um, because just like the organizations that we're funding, we're always trying to think about how we can do better and and be more inclusive. Um, as you were talking earlier, and you you had said, we, we you know, I asked the question about what you, what had you seen that has changed, and you said, you know, more importantly, what what we haven't seen change. So as you look forward, um, what, what's is there one thing in particular that jumps out at you that you wish that you could push for, or you would wish that 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 uh, you'd like to see happen? Well, I think that's that's a really challenging question um, mm. because there, everything is so inter, um, intertwined. Mm. But I do think that if we can begin to address issues of poverty, we can address um, issues of violence. So, you know, if people have an adequate income, uh, they're going to have choices. They're going to be able to have some housing, um, and then because one of the challenges for women who ex- are experiencing in intimate partner violence is oftentimes they can't afford to leave the situations that they're in. Mm-hmm. So um, if, if women are have income, adequate income, then sometimes it's easier to make choices. It doesn't solve the problem. You know, one isn't mm-hmm. caused by the other, but they do have a r- bit of a ripple effect. So, um, you know, I'd really love to see us addressing issues of violence and issues of poverty. Mm. Um, and I do think that we can make a difference. I do think that those are all possible. Um, we just have to work a little bit harder. Nice. Okay, nicely said. Well, uh, let's move on to talk about the upcoming event on Thursday, March the 5th at the Sheridan Centre in Toronto. It's your, uh, as you mentioned, it's a fundraiser. You call it the Exchange, uh, Conversations to Inspire Change. And your uh, your guest this year is Samantha Lee, as you pointed out. Uh, she's the host of uh, Full Frontal, uh, a comedian. Um, so... Um, uh, people can go online to find out more uh, and uh, buy tickets online at your uh, canadianwomen.org. Uh, what else would you like to share about the event? 
I would just say it's, I think it's going to be a really exciting event. I'm really excited to hear Samantha B. Um, she's got a lot of really important things to say, and it's a great opportunity to support uh, women and girls and trans folks across the country. Um, so it's a, re- a really exciting opportunity, and, and uh, I hope lots of people will be able to, to join us. Mm. Now, um I, this is not the first year you've done this. You've had some in the past. Mm-hmm. We it used to be a breakfast. Okay. Um, at, at last year we had Anita Hill speak. Okay. Um, and that was a really interesting conversation too. So uh, we hopefully we'll be announcing soon who's going to be next year after, mm. after Samantha B. Uh, what do you hope that, uh, aside from, from you know, being a fundraiser, what are the kind of comments that you hear from people and some of the donors that have helped out in the past uh, about about supporting this kind of thing and the benefit that, that you have, have brought to others? I think people um, feel really good about participating and supporting. And lots of people have... Um, you know, personal experiences of why working on these issues are, are important to them. Um, most people, um, like half of all women in Canada, have have experienced some form of physical or sexual violence, and you know, 67% of Canadians say they personally know someone who's experienced uh, violence. So it's it's everyone. We're all part of this. Um, so I think that when people donate and participate, they feel like they're helping their friend, their neighbor, themselves. Mm. Okay, nicely said. Uh, Beth, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing uh, information about the Canadian Women's Foundation and also about the upcoming event on March 5th uh, that we talked about. Uh, and as we, we said, it's called The Exchange. It's going to be Thursday, March 5th at the Sheridan Centre in Toronto. And you can go online to thecanadianwomen.org to find out more and uh, buy tickets there as well. Well, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure talking with you, and I enjoyed the conversation. All righty. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye. And that was Beth Malcolm. She is the VP for Canadian Women's Foundation, the director of the Girls Fund at the Canadian Women's Foundation. Don't go away because we're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM with more right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. And you can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. Just download the app and type in 95.7 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that could come in handy with uh, my next guest on the show. Uh, she is calling in from Whitehorse. It's a pleasure to have her on the line. And, uh, you know, she could be listening up there or even listening to this uh, interview at, at a at later date because we're going to post it up on uh, our social media as well, uh, you know, website as well as on our SoundCloud uh, for people that are outside of our listening area. And uh, Tosh Southwick is uh, on the line, and uh, she's joining us from... Uh, now, she works at what is called Yukon College, which is now going to be Yukon University. Tosh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be on Element. Now, we were talking uh, about weather momentarily ago and about how you were all excited that it's going to be potentially minus 40 in a couple of days in Whitehorse. That's right. We're, I'm really looking forward to it. So Now, why, why are you looking forward to that? There, there must be something. Is it something that you can do when the weather get that, gets that cold out there that you guys can participate in or, or take part in? Yeah, Fun. you know, we, we haven't had a really traditional Yukon uh, winter for, for a number of years. Normally, you know, when I was growing up, we would get minus 40, minus 50 for a few weeks. And mm. So if we get minus 40 even for a day or two, these years we're lucky. And we need that to get our uh, our lakes frozen to the right depth uh, to make sure that the fur on the animals is is bushy and where it needs to be and um, and all sorts of other reasons in, in the north. So I'm really excited that uh, we might have the possible minus 40, I remember, from when I was growing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to hear. I, I'm glad you tied in that that uh, element of of nature and things because we tend to gloss over that these days and forget about 
uh, how how this environment uh, impacts other things other than ourselves. So thanks yeah. thanks for mentioning that and 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 you know that ties in I guess to partly what you do uh, with uh, your new position at, uh, at at York or Yukon College, which is now going to be a Yukon uh, University. I'm sorry, I keep wanting to say York because I went to York University, so it's it's no kind problem. of trying to slip out there. <laughs> and and so you have this new position, uh, and congratulations uh, for you. for yourself in this. Uh, so, so tell us about about uh, yourself and and this new position you're going to be taking on. Sure. So, my name is Tosh Southwick. I'm a citizen of Klawani First Nation, which is a self-governing First Nation about three hours northwest of Whitehorse. Uh, I've come from the Wolf Clan, and I have worked with Yukon College for the last eleven years, and just recently became the associate vice president of Indigenous Engagement and Reconciliation. And a big part of my job is to ensure that as we transition into Yukon University, reconciliation and our partnership with Yukon First Nations is at the forefront. Yeah, so it's kind of like a twofold thing I think you're, you've, you've rolled into. You recently got this, uh, this new, uh, new position, as you mentioned, Associate yeah. Vice President of Indigenous Engagement and Reconciliation. Um, yep. But the university is transitioning as well. Um, yeah. So, so it's kind of like a twofold thing. Um, what do you see, and, and, you know, with reconciliation tagged on there, um, aside from everything else you're going to have to do, what, what do you feel that, that you're going to have to oversee or, or make sure that is implemented as you go forward? Yeah, well, I think the transition into Yukon University is really exciting, not only for Yukoners, but for, for Canadians. You know, Canada is the only circumpolar Arctic country that doesn't have a university north of 60, mm. uh, which is really, you know, kind of strange when you look at, at countries like Norway and Sweden that have many. Mm. Uh, so for us to be Canada's first north of 60 university is really exciting uh, for the entire country and for the north. And, you know, for me, it's, I, I grew up in a territory where if you wanted to get a, a post-secondary education, um, at least an undergraduate or graduate degree, you had to leave the territory. You had to go mm. down south and learn about the north from the south. And what we're trying to do with UConn University is to change that, to shift that paradigm and make sure that we're solving northern issues in the north by northerners. And so when we're talking about reconciliation, that ties directly into the transition of UConn University. The UConn First Nations have been asking for a university for over 50 years. They recognize the importance of creating our own knowledge up in the north and holding up our own values of what is truth. Uh, just to say that, you know, having a, a university north of 60 is really important when we talk about the uh, the challenges we're facing with things like climate change. Mm. Yukon is one of the fastest warming places in the world. And uh, we need people in the north who are, are trained and, and able to, to tackle these big challenges and come up with northern solutions that are going to work. Mm. And when we're talking about reconciliation, that means building the capacity for us to do those things in partnership with our indigenous, uh, our Yukon First Nations. Right. And and of course, uh, I think the the uh, university or the college uh, has actually stipulated that that is going to uh, it's mandated that you guys are going to have to do that. Yeah, our UConn uh, university legislation, uh, you know, is really cutting edge in terms of reconciliation. I I haven't seen any legislation uh, nationally that that comes close to what uh, what our territorial government and our First Nations have come up with. It actually anchors our responsibility to reconciliation right in the legislation. Mm. It, uh, it also gives um, the Yukon First Nations the same authority as the territorial government over creating accountability measures. So the, the 14 Yukon First Nations will work with our territorial government and the Yukon University to come up with a reporting mechanism so that we're, we're showing them that we're meeting our, our obligations under the legislation. Uh, and I think that's really groundbreaking. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned something about that. It, it, I read something where the, the, the university is going to actually have to um, uh, go back to the, the First Nation communities, uh, report to them. Yeah, exactly. So most universities have to report to their provincial uh, counter, their provincial departments, their mm. post-secondary departments, uh, advanced education departments. Um, nothing, that's the same is true for us in the Yukon. We have to report back to the Department of Education. What is new under the new legislation is that we will also have to report back to the 14 First Nations. Yeah. It's a recognition that they are a level of government, just like the territorial government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, m- mentioning that and mentioning the college again, uh, what's the student population roughly of the college slash university? Yeah, so we have about 1,200 to 1,500 full-time students or students, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, about 500 of them are full-time. We have uh, 13 campuses spread throughout the, the territory, so we have quite a lot of infrastructure uh, across the territory. So we have a number of students that join us 
uh, either via distance from their community campus or from uh, programs that are hosted in their community. In addition to that, we have, of course, our continuing education uh, branch. So we, we see a number of professional development courses and, and students that way. And the, the intent behind transitioning into the university was that we could offer more of a breadth of programming. We will, of course, always keep our trades, our adult basic education, and our vocational program, which is why we're gonna, we are called in a hybrid university. Mm-hmm. We'll be adding, we'll, we will be adding uh, additional credentials as we go. We've already launched our first uh, degree, first two degrees, our Indigenous Governance degree, and our business, uh, a Bachelor of Business Admin degree, both of which have a very strong Northern component. Yes, yes, that's right, and rightfully so, of course. Uh, I know uh, you. that's something you pointed out. Uh, if people are there working or living uh, in the North, then they certainly should be aware of, of the communities and of the, the traditional values, etc., of the North. Absolutely. Now, something you mentioned earlier in the conversation, and I'm, I was just wondering about this, if, if it has any uh, tie-in whatsoever, and that is, uh, you mentioned the cir- circumpolar area. And, of course, being up there in the circumpolar area, I, I did have a chance to visit the north a couple of times. And, it, it, you know, it, it is almost like you guys are your own world in many ways. <laughs> and um, I know that there is this circumpolar relationship that, that takes place. So is there is there anything that that you have going on in in that regard with your other uh, your other uh, other areas in the circumpolar region? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Now, you know, I, I often will travel to the south and say, "Wow, this is like a whole other world as well." Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we have really strong relationships both with the Nunavut and Northwest Territories. We've worked with those colleges for thirty plus years. In terms of the, the larger international circumpolar world, we are founding members of uh, UArctic, which is the University of Arctic. Mm. Uh, it is a, a coalition of a number of institutions that work and operate in the Arctic. So we have really strong ties with a number of institutions, both on the research and programming field. And thanks to some funding that's, uh, that's recently been announced from the federal government, we will start to increase that, um, that, that aspect of the work we do. So we were going to start to increase student mobility from circumpolar nations to circumpolar nations. Uh, we are going to start to increase the, the research and the professional development um, across the board. And I, I think there is something really exciting when we talk about Arctic countries. We have a lot in common. The challenges are often very much the same. Uh, you know, the history of colonization is very much uh, a commonality amongst Arctic nations. And so we have a lot to share, we, and we have a lot to learn, um, even, you know, from, from everybody else's challenges and how they've approached those, whether that be climate change, reconciliation, um, shipping, all of those pieces. Uh, we have something to learn from, and we have something to contribute. So I, I think that will continue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, of course, Atash, you, you are, are, are in many ways uh, uh, very well suited to the position you're taking on uh, because not only of the time that you've, you've been at the, the, uh, the college and university, but because of some of your prior uh, working experience. Um, you've, you've worked, uh, you worked as a youth counselor and the deputy chief for your first nation, I understand. That's true. Yep. And how long did you serve on those positions? I served as youth counselor for two terms. The first term was, uh, was short. It was about a year and the second term was three. And then I was deputy chief for three years. Uh, you know, I, I think anybody who has the, the honor of serving in leadership for their community will tell you that it was one of the best learning experiences of my life and really contributed to how I uh, how I lead today, and um, what what would you say is that that experience uh, taught you about um, how to how to how to how to help in this position? I mean, and what I'm getting at is that you know, with that experience, it kind of allows you to see maybe into into other other ways that people think or work within the realms of their own positions and, and organizations that they are involved with? Yeah, I think it, it taught me that there's a, a fundamental difference between a, a Western hierarchical leadership approach and an Indigenous, more collective uh, approach, but that there is lots of room to meet in the middle. Um, it taught me how to have some difficult conversations, honest conversations in a good way. Um, it definitely taught me how to make sure that I had a support network uh, to tackle some of the difficult conversations. And I I think probably the one that I carry the most through is the idea that it's bigger than any one of us. Mm. Um, we have to be there for the, the betterment of everybody. And so at UConn College, soon to be UConn University, 
I often approach the, the conversation as how can we make what we do the best we can do for our students and for our staff and faculty. Mm. And I, I think I came away from my experience as, uh, as deputy chief with those, those thoughts. Mm. How large is your community, your, your home community? How many, what's the population? Roughly? You know what, on a good year, we might have 100 people in, mm. the, in the community and maybe 130 in the traditional territory, but right. we have about 250 members. We're growing, mm. but we're yep. one of the smallest First Nations in the Yukon. Right. Now, you know, I'm wondering, what is the sense so far of the students that are attending the, the college slash university about this change? Um, are they excited? Are they, uh, has that... Uh, has that given them a boost uh, in some ways? Yeah, I, I hear a lot of excitement in the halls. I think it's it's very uh, exciting for students to realize that they can take a credential and undergraduate degree right from their home community, that they don't have to leave the territory anymore. Um, there's something empowering about that. We're seeing people come through our doors that had never considered the opportunity of getting a, a degree before, but because now they don't have to leave, they're here. I also think there's a lot of excitement on our students to be part of Canada's first northern university. Uh, there's a, a buzz, I would say, almost uh, across the country. We were in Ottawa a few few weeks before Christmas, and the excitement from people that we met down there was, was contagious, and uh, we're looking forward to going back soon. And so I think the buzz is not just with our students and our staff and our faculty and our communities, but right across Canada, which is really exciting. That's great. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Canada and, y- and your own uh, education in a moment, but I just wanted to let everyone know that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, I'm, I'm David Moses, your host. My guest is uh, Tosh Southwick, and she is uh, in the Yukon. She's in, the, in Whitehorse and uh, calling us, and we appreciate her calling us in. Uh, she's recently had a promotion from Executive Director of First Nations Initiatives and Community Innovation and Development to a new, uh, create, newly created position, actually, at uh, Yukon College slash University as the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement and Reconciliation. Um, Tosh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you had mentioned this earlier that students are excited that they no longer have to leave their community, they can take their their education that they're looking for, get a degree in their community, which is fabulous. But that wasn't your option at the time. You actually had to go south, and you mentioned uh, traveling south and how you saw that, uh, as we had mentioned, is sort of a different world. The north and south are, are, are different in so many ways. But you, uh, you actually have a Master of Education from the University of British Columbia and also a, a Bachelor of Arts with honors in in uh, psychology from the University of Victoria. That is true. And you want to talk about a different world, you know, moving from a, a small, you know, remote northern community to a, a campus the size of Univers- University of Victoria was life-changing, mm. not the least of which was to mention all of the rabbits that were running around campus. You don't see that in the North <laughs> <laughs> I was almost going to say, did you want to, well, you know, turn them into a meal of sorts or something? But anyway. I'm telling you, David, there would not be such a thing as starving (laughs) students if that was the case up here. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Um, and, you know, when you say that, I I, I did go to, I uh, spent some time at, at the University of Victoria. I didn't find it that big of a university. So um, from, from anyway, from, from you know, from uh, somewhere like York University where I attended. Yeah. Nice campus. Nice campus. Not saying Beautiful in, campus. But yeah, uh, yeah. likewise, so is the University of British Columbia. So that, that, again, another change for you. And I guess what I was getting at is, is the change not only uh, from going from north to south, but just that that uh, change of being in in uh, you know immersed into a into a, a university setting where there are thousands of students around all the time and and of course uh, a, a, a completely different physical environment. Yeah, and I, I mean I think the reality for many Yukon students is there were some credentials that you could get here in Whitehorse, but even then most of the time you had to move into Whitehorse wanted to get an undergraduate degree in something like psychology or law or any of those other places, you had to leave. And that meant leaving your entire support system. It meant totally changing the way that that you live. And for many of our Indigenous students in particular, it's incredibly challenging to leave your community. Mm. You know, we we are often based on collective societies and we have responsibilities in our community, so it's really challenging. You don't have your parents, your grandparents, your aunties and uncles around you. The culture culture is completely different Mm -hmm. um, at these large institutions. And, you know, the other thing that I really noticed when I went down south was the relevance. Uh, you know, they're, they're teaching what is normal in a major urban center. They're not teaching what is normal or what is reality in a, a small, remote northern community. 
So UConn University, you know, if you want to study medieval studies, it's probably not your destination university. <laughs> but if you want to study what it's like to practice social work in the North or mm. to teach in the North, in a remote Indigenous community, then we can help you live that reality probably better than a massive institution uh, located in the South that doesn't have the same experience. You know, Tosh, I think you're onto something there. I have had discussions with numerous people about uh, people that are from the South going to the North for teaching purposes. And that that's a, as much a challenge for people coming from the South going to the North. And I think you're right. If people were to go there to learn how to teach in the North, that would be a wonderful opportunity to them for them to learn how to immerse themselves into the, into the Northern communities that they're going to be uh, sent to to teach. Exactly. And the, and the same is true for the Indigenous governance. If you want to work with Yukon First Nations or work with First Nations in, in a northern context or a self-governing context, then it makes sense that you study in a context that's doing that already. You know, our First Nations have been self-governing for 25 plus years. Um, there is a real uh, lesson to be taught there nationally. And I, I think the intent is that we have an expertise in the territory that we can share with that. And, and really, that's meant for anybody across the country. Now, you, you touched on something there about the teaching and about uh, learning about how to uh, teach in the North uh, if, you're, if you're coming from the South so that you have that experience and get that uh, opportunity to learn what you're going to be doing as you move into a Northern community. Um, because there are so many things that, that people, even on a personal level, would be experiencing, never mind what they're going to find in the classroom or what they're going to be uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, brought into in that situation. Um, and on and just living on a day-to-day basis because it is such a, a different uh, environment from the north. Now, uh, having said that, and I wanted to come back to this, your experience of going to the south, uh, you know, you, we talked about the differences and, and some of the potential um, not necessarily positive experiences, but the positive side of that is that I think it opened your eyes to to see the, those differences and recognize those differences. Uh, what, what are some of the other things that you would say were, the, were the, the positive experiences of going south to get that education and be exposed to the southern communities? Well, I don't want to undervalue my first experience eating Thai food. That was amazing. <laughs> um, I think you're right. There were lots of really exciting pieces. I think the, the people that I met, the different cultures that I was exposed to, uh, the learning environment at a at a major university was was phenomenal. The resources that were down there to to help me learn, you know, we're very very lucky at Yukon College, uh, Yukon University, to have really talented faculty in small class sizes. Mm. Um, so there was something very different about learning, you know, your first two years of psychology in a class of twenty people, and then heading to University of Victoria when you were in a class of five hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the you know the cohort sizes, all of those, really helped me to work with diverse groups to see very different viewpoints. Um, and to also recognize that that I was a knowledge holder in my own right coming from the North and that I offered a very different perspective from many of my classmates. And, mm-hmm. and that was really empowering. Right. Nicely said. Now, uh, I also understand that uh, you have been traveling around. Uh, you mentioned this uh, going to Ottawa just recently. But you've been, uh, I guess, uh, spreading the word about the university and, and, uh, and, and about what's going on with it. We have. We, you know, we're so excited at the opportunities this is going to bring for the North and, and for the voice of Northerners. So every chance I get, I'm shouting from rooftops. <laughs> but you've gone to Nunavut Arctic College, I understand. You've gone to other places uh, and, and spoke with the Council of uh, Ministers of Education. Yep, CMEC. Uh, we, we've had lots of meetings in Ottawa. We've even done, I was recently able to go to URTIC's um, council meeting. Um, was able to talk about the Yukon University internationally, what that uh, that's going to do. Uh, we'll be heading, hopefully, to the World Indigenous Peoples Conference um, next year, and we'll be talking uh, to a larger audience about Yukon University there, in particular the precedents that Yukon University is set with reconciliation for that audience. Um, you know, any anytime we travel anywhere across Canada, whether it's Saskatchewan for uh, Colleges and Institute Canada's event, um, we're talking about it. We also hosted this summer um, at Summer Institute on Reconciliation for Post-Secondaries. We hosted over 31 universities and colleges here where we had both their presidents and their reconciliation lead, and we spent mm. a big time talking about what UConn University was and what it was going to be. Mm, nicely said. Sounds great uh, and, and so wonderful to hear. Congratulations uh, to not only you for the new position, but also to uh, UConn College slash University, which uh, I guess... 
at the end of this uh, semester, the the first students will be graduating with a degree in some areas, I understand? That's right. We will have our first convocation at UConn University this May, and we will have students from our Indigenous Governance degree, our first made in UConn credential, across the stage. That's fabulous. How exciting. Yeah. Uh, Tahash, uh, now, maybe we have spurred some interest here for uh, uh, students and, and people that are interested in finding out more about UConn uh, College slash University and uh, what's going to be uh, offered. Maybe there's some areas that we have talked on, especially in the area of teaching, that people want to find out more. What would you recommend they do? I would recommend they check out our website. It's got the most up-to-date information, uconncollege.yk.ca. And, of course, feel free to reach out to anybody you find online. And uh, would that include yourself? Absolutely. I'm the only Tosh, probably in the Yukon, but I'm easy to find on Yukon College's website. Um, and so absolutely reach out. That sounds great. Well, congratulations once again to you and to Yukon University. Oh, thank you so much for having us and reaching out on this, this morning. And uh, I hope you guys don't get as cold as we do. <laughs> well, uh, we, I certainly hope you get a chance to enjoy the cold weather you're, you want to experience. And I do agree. I think that uh, we do need that cold. Even here, we need some of that cold uh, to remind us not only what it was like, uh, you know, more traditionally, but it it does have benefits for uh, other things besides us. You know, uh, that freezing has a purpose. That's why that's why it was there. So, um, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Great. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. That's Tosh Southwick, and she was joining us from Whitehorse on the line, and she has just recently uh, been promoted from Executive Director of First Nations Initiatives and Community Innovation and Development to her new position as Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement and Reconciliation at UConn University. That university uh, is going to be graduating their first students with uh, a degree at the end of this uh, semester going into 2020 and moving forward. If you want to find out more, as you said, you look up their, uh, their website, uh, UConn College Online, and uh, you can find out more. And as she said, uh, reach out to her or anyone else that you might find if you have questions. Uh, I really like what she was saying about that idea of having people uh, from the South who are interested in going North to teach and uh, going there to learn what it would be like for them to be teaching in the North and in the communities. Uh, It really is a different world if you've never been there. Uh, And if you're going up there cold, uh, it might be, uh, it's like uh, going anywhere else, uh, going to a different culture. So, if you want to find out more, uh, you can do that at UConn College slash University. Congratulations to her. And that's our show for today. I thank you for listening, and please do listen in next time here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It's been a pleasure. Until next time, onigiha.